Hi, Anne Hawley here, co-producer and editor of the Editor Roundtable podcast. Thanks for joining us while we take a little break from our regular episodes in order to bring you a preview of what's in store for season four, beginning on January 9th, 2019. In our season three, we examined a range of story principles, everything from narrative drive to symbolism to Virgin's Promise Structure, adapting a true life story, progressive complications, framing stories, emotional stakes, by looking at some of our favorite movies. And in the process, we each discovered that we had an area of particular interest. So for season four, we'll each be choosing a single story principle that we want to study for our own writing projects. Stick around and we'll tell you what they are. The plan is to pitch three movies apiece that we think embody the story principle that we want to study. And over the course of 15 episodes, we expect to become real experts in five very specific story principles. We hope you'll come along and become an expert, too. That's it. The music from my dream. I call it the Cloud Atlas Sextet. At home. Movements I wrote imagining us. Meeting again and again in different lives, in different ages. Since this was my bright idea, I'm going first. For season four, episode one, I've pitched Cloud Atlas by Lana and Lily Wachowski. It's based on one of my favorite novels, David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, published in 2004. The story principle I want to study this season is complex, nonlinear story structure. You might recall that I'm the meanie who made the team analyze both Charlie Kaufman's adaptation and Christopher Nolan's Inception in season three. I'm going to continue to challenge myself and them with similarly brain-teasing movies in season four. Why is that? Well, it's not just because I like tormenting my fellow roundtablers, although that's kind of fun, but it's because Cloud Atlas is the model I'm using to structure my own next novel and it's way more masterful and tricky than I was capable of emulating a year and a half ago. But since then, 40 weekly in-depth story analysis sessions with my great roundtable team and a year of working with clients and their many stories has made me feel ready to try again. Cloud Atlas embodies two narrative devices that I want to use in my novel and use well, a nested nonlinear story structure and separate story threads that weave together in the end. I want to know, how do the masters decide where to start and stop each thread? How do they keep mystery from becoming just confusion? How much do they conceal and why? And how much do they reveal and when? If I can figure all that out, my novel might have a chance. Its working title is Stereogram, and it has a global genre of society, subgenre, woman versus patriarchy. It's a true mini-plot with five or six separate but interwoven character stories. It's also historical, set around 1905 here in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, but with slightly more magic. So my hope is that joining with my fellow roundtablers, who are all geniuses, in analyzing Cloud Atlas, plus my other two movies over the course of the season, is going to help me see a path to completing my own novel. Jari... Kim, Leslie, Valerie, I'm counting on you, my friends. But there's no ship that can match the interceptor for speed. I've heard of one. It's supposed to be very fast, nigh uncatchable. The Black Pearl. <laughs> there's no real ship that can match the interceptor. Black Pearl is a real ship. No, no it's not. 
Yes, it is. I've seen it. Leslie Watts here, and in season four, I'm focusing on conventions for the action, subgenres, and plots. Genre conventions are the characters, settings, and means of turning the plot that set up reader expectations and are paid off by the obligatory scenes. Think of them as the conditions or ingredients required to create a specific cause and effect pattern for the genre. You can find a list of the basic action conventions in the show notes for Wonder Woman or Jack the Giant Slayer. So why am I digging into this topic now? Sean has identified four subgenres within action. They are adventure, duel, epic, and clock. And each subgenre has its own four plots. I won't list those now. The subgenres and plots come with additional conventions that are important to telling those stories, but don't currently appear in our official StoryGrid cheat sheets. My goal this season is to begin identifying those extra conventions, but I also want to better understand conventions so I can innovate and meet reader expectations in my own action story. For episode two, I've pitched Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, and directed by Gore Verbinski. It's based not on a novel, but the Disney theme park attraction. The genre is action duel, and it's got a hunted plot. I chose to start my exploration with Pirates of the Caribbean because my own work in progress is also a nautical story, a category with its own conventions, and because the hunted plot contains some particularly distinct and interesting conventions. And my other two pitches this season will be stories from two of the other subgenres within action. Along the way, I will talk about how to identify and analyze conventions in a masterwork, no matter the genre, and also call out the conventions in the films chosen by my fellow roundtable editors. I'm really looking forward to season four and sharing my discoveries about action conventions. Pirates of the Caribbean will be featured in episode two, and we'll post it on January 16. See you then. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you can fit right in. Hey, everyone. This is Jari Bolander. And for season number four of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast, I am going to take a look at dialogue. I am right now working on a memoir. And that's the reason why I chose dialogue, because I think one of the most important things that brings a story to life is what the characters say. Dialogue can make or break a novel, play, or a movie. It's the glue that holds a story together, and it's the yin to the narrative yang. Without crisp, realistic dialogue and meaningful dialogue, the story will just will fall flat. So I'm going to explore some of the best ways to write dialogue. And specifically, I'm going to look at dialogue and how that is driven by the set and setting of both the novel and the character. In my kind of nomenclature, set is the mindset of the character and setting is the environment that they happen to be in. I was also inspired to do this through a book that I'm actually just starting to read called Dialogue by McKee. Uh, and he gives some great reasons why dialogue is essential to the story. So I'm just going to read a real quick quote, kind of frame how I'm going to approach it. 
No matter how lavish a play's production, how vivid a novel's descriptions, how lush a film's photography, character talk shapes the deepest complexities, ironies, and innerness of story. Without expressive dialogue, events lack depth, characters lose dimension, and stories flatten. More than any other technique of characterization, gender, age, dress, class, casting, dialogue has the power to pull a story up through life's multi-layer strata, thus lifting a merely complicated telling into the full array of complexity. That's a pretty big uh, <laughs> mouthful there, but I think being able to write dialogue like McKee just mentioned is going to really drive home what I'm trying to get at while I'm writing my memoir. Because especially in memoir, when you're trying to convey the inner feelings and inner motivations of the people that you may be talking to, that's sort of the only way you can do it. You can't really get in their head. It's always what they're saying. So dialogue is an essential element of stories, it needs to be crafted to move the story forward, but it has to have that yin and yang with narrative drive. You got to have both. You can't just have heavy dialogue and no narrative drive. So studying great dialogue will help us write better dialogue. We want to study how master storytellers shape and craft dialogue. So my first movie, drumroll please, will be The Shawshank Redemption. This is a, an excellent example of how set and setting really drives the story dialogue. And there are just some wonderful moments in it that show how the characters evolve and go through things in just spectacular detail. So looking forward to it. I hope that you guys continue to listen to the podcast. We actually really appreciate all of your tweets, all of your reviews, all of your questions. It's the reason why we do it. You know, we're all story nerds here. And what we really want to do is provide just a great dialogue and discussion so that we can all become better writers. That's the whole point of doing the, the podcast. That's why we all came together. And that's what we really enjoy doing. So look for the Shawshank Redemption coming at the end of January. See you next season. Ah, for the pen of a Balzac. For three days, all these people, these total strangers, meet in a single train whose engine controls their destiny. Hi, this is Valerie, and in season four, I'm going to continue my study of narrative drive. As a quick refresher, narrative drive is all about how much information the audience has with respect to the characters. Who knows what? How much do we as writers reveal? How do we parcel out that information? When and why? Some of you already know that I'm a writer as well as an editor, and in fact, I'm primarily a writer. So naturally, this question of what keeps a reader turning pages fascinates me. Now, of course, there isn't just one thing that grabs and holds a reader's attention, but I'm convinced that narrative drive is a key factor. No matter which genre you write in, or whether your global content genre is external or internal, understanding narrative drive is essential. For example, I write women's fiction, so when that includes a love story, holding the reader's attention can be a challenge. That genre has been well covered, and most modern love stories have a happy ending. So if the reader knows the ending, how else can I create curiosity? Right now I'm branching out into thrillers, and my current work in progress poses a particular challenge with respect to narrative drive, which of course is why I'm studying it, right? Thrillers require suspense. In other words, the audience and the characters have to have the same amount of information. But the topic that I've chosen puts me smack dab into dramatic irony. 
in my story, the readers are going to have way more information than my characters even before they crack the cover. This is a problem. <laughs> now, I have some ideas about how I'm going to handle it, but if there's one thing that my time with StoryGrid has taught me, it's to study masterworks. When we looked at Get Out in season three, I learned that writers can use more than one form of narrative drive to propel a story forward. That said, I've tried to choose films that rely heavily on one form over the other two. My hope is that by isolating them, you know, as best we can anyway, we can do a deep dive into this principle of storytelling and get a really good look at what each of these things are and how they work. I'm also writing a three-part series on the Fundamental Fridays blog about narrative drive, so keep an eye out for that. For this podcast, though, the first thing I'm going to look at is mystery. This is when characters have more information than the audience. To study it, I've chosen the 1974 version of Murder on the Orient Express. Who better to learn mystery from than the queen of mystery herself, Agatha Christie? I've also chosen my films for suspense and dramatic irony, but I'm not going to tell you what those are. Remember, mystery requires that I, as the protagonist of the story, have more information than you as the audience. <laughs> and whether you realize it or not, your curiosity has been piqued. Right now, you're wondering what those other two movies are. You want to know which stories are excellent examples of suspense and dramatic irony. Murder on the Orient Express is episode four of season four, and it will air on January 30th. I'll see you then. What's the thing you want to do most if you were totally fine? This is a map of your country's lamest roadside attractions. The world's deepest pit. World's biggest bovine. What makes you think I would let you take my son on a road trip? I won't let anything happen to your son. Hey, everyone. Kim Kessler here. So I came into the story grid as a writer first, as I'm sure many of you did. And so for season four, I'm continuing my in-depth study of global internal genre stories. And specifically, I want to look at the kinds of stories that I want to tell as a writer. Internal genres remain the squishy, unpin-downable topic for a lot of writers in the StoryGrid universe, and so whether or not you seek to tell them at the global level, studying them at this deep level by getting as specific as possible will help you execute them at any level. The first global internal genre story that I'm going to have us look at this season is The Fundamentals of Caring. This is a 2016 comedy drama film which sounds like code for humorous global internal genre to me. It's written and directed by Rob Burnett, and it's based on the 2012 novel The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving by Jonathan Evison. It stars Paul Rudd, Craig Roberts, and Selena Gomez. It first premiered at the Sundance Film Festival before airing as a Netflix original film. The story is about Ben, a writer who stopped writing due to a personal tragedy, and Trevor, an 18-year-old who suffers from Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Ben takes a new job as Trevor's in-home caregiver, something that proves to be a challenge and a growth point for both of them. This story definitely ticks the boxes for me uh, as the kind of stories that I want to write, humorous, heartfelt, and a prescriptive tale that delivers a redemptive perspective on pain. So this season, along with Friedman's framework, there are four areas I'm specifically analyzing for. Number one, 
how the life values are established in the beginning hook or the status quo of the story, and then how they're demonstrated to change over the spine of the story. I'm looking for specific elements, actions, or dialogue that transmit that life value, something tangible that I can point to and model after. Number two, which external genres are used and how many? Does the story have one strong external genre that acts like a co-pilot, or does it have multiple interwoven external genres that act like subplots, or maybe something else? Also, are there any recurring patterns or strong pairings that we can identify? Number three, what is my overall feeling of emotional satisfaction at the ending, and why? Would I change anything about the story to strengthen my own or the audience's emotional experience? And finally, As with all stories, I want to step back to the meta, meta, meta story and ask myself what this story means for me and the world. What's that theme controlling idea that transcends genre to just being human? This is my favorite thing about story, the transformative power of witnessing a specific character in a specific situation, experiencing a specific change that then yields the specific pattern of universal meaning, meaning that I can interpret and take with me to apply to my real world. For me, as a writer, reader, editor, human, this is what storytelling is all about. I'm so glad to have you with us on this journey. Stay tuned for season four. It's going to be great. 